Let's go ahead and uh, get started. Father, thanks so much for this day. You've granted to us a beautiful day out. And uh, I pray that you would guide our discussions now as we study your word. Thank you for it. And thank you for your provision in Christ's name. Amen. Um, in two weeks, Richard Fisher is going to be out here to give certificates to those who did the first five courses. Um, so we got four recipients in here. So, And he's, I, he's going to check out and see how well I teach or how badly I teach, too. So um, he'll be here. Richard Fisher's the uh, director for the Moody Extension Schools in Northeast Ohio. So he'll be here. But uh, t- today we're going to talk about um, the next topic in um, anthropology and martyology, which is the fall of man. And we'll be spending a lot of time, by the way, in Genesis 3 and Romans 5. So that's where we'll be as far as our text goes. Romans, yeah, Romans 3, Genesis 5. No, Genesis 3, Romans 5. All right. Genesis 3, Romans 5. When we look at um, God's creation of man, God created man with certain responsibilities in the garden. He didn't put Adam in the garden and just sort of loaf all day long um, and sort of sit around and eat and do nothing else, be idle. But God put him there for a reason. God created man for a reason. All right? And one of those reasons, if you look at these verses here, is man was to assume headship over all of nature. Man was to have dominion over all the things that God had created. Um, now, if you look at Genesis 1.26, then God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness and let him, them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the lands, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man to have dominion over his creation. Now, what do you think that means, dominion? When we talk about dominion, what is that? When you think of dominion. To rule over, okay? Did man own it? No, no. no, man didn't own it. Man did not own creation, but man was given responsibility over it. He was given dominion over it. Now, if he's given dominion over it, what does that imply creation was created for? Man. All right. Now, we've got a lot of enviro whack jobs out there that want to make us no different than a toad or a frog or a beetle. Um, we're just happen to be the, accidentally happen to be the highest life form on the planet. Um, and they want us to go back to nature. You know, and they, they don't want us to use oil. They don't want us to use nuclear power. They don't want us to use all of this stuff. And quite honestly, folks, God created this world for, as a disposable planet. He created it for us, for human beings. And we are given dominion over it. That means we are to subdue it. And that later on, one of the things that God says to man is that he is to subdue it. Now, if you are to subdue nature, what does that imply you have to do? Overcome it. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but if you don't attend your garden for a long time, what happens? Nothing grows. In my case, if I tend it, it doesn't grow. But in most cases, if you don't tend your garden, it's overcome with weeds. Um, that's part of, the, by the way, the curse of the fall. But God created man to have dominion over this planet. That does not mean that we are to abuse it. Right? It doesn't mean that we are to just willy-nilly destroy it. It does mean that we are to rule over it. We are to subdue it. We are to garden it. In fact, God put man in the garden to tend it. All right? Now, Adam didn't have to deal with weeds and mosquitoes and bugs like we do. But not at first he didn't. But he was to tend the garden. He was to take care of that. That was 
something that he was supposed to do. So when we talk about man having headship over creation, we don't mean that we, are, we have a, a right to just go and destroy it and be environmentally unconscious. We shouldn't trash it up. But on the other hand, we should use it wisely. We should use the resources that God has given us. And that would include all of them. You know, it's not a sin to cut down a tree for firewood. It's not a sin to kill a deer for meat. It's not a sin to drill for oil in Anwar. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just generally. It's not a sin to do that. God has put these resources here for us to use. And God put enough of them here to use for as long as we needed to use it. Right? It's a disposable planet. What's going to happen someday? It's going to go away, right? God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. That does not mean we trash it because we are stewards of it. We are stewards of this planet. And I think there's something that brings God honor and glory when we understand that this planet was created by God. We are a steward of it. We are to manage it wisely. And we do that. There's something that honors God in that. We don't worship the planet. That's one of the things we have in the New Age, right? Worship Mother Earth. Worship the planet. No, we don't worship the planet. Because if we do, we fall into the sin in Romans, right? Where they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. creator. So we don't want to go that way. But we are a steward. So as a Christian, your yard should be fairly well kept. Alright? That's a reflection of caring for creation. I know I know a friend said, well, you know, I'm, I'm God and I'm, I'm just going to let my... Uh, Yard go, you know that. You know I don't want to spend time doing that because I have more important spiritual things to do than mow my yard. No, you take care of your yard. You take care of what God's given you. You take care of the plants, whatever. Um, if you've been given a home, take care of it. Don't worship the house, but take care of the house, right? I mean, part of subduing creation is to maintain and care for those things that God's given you, like a home or things like that. Don't worship the house, but take care of it. And man is to have headship over nature. We are, we are the top of the food chain, so to speak. We are created to be that. We, God, and God has placed all of creation underneath us. All right. He is also to make his headquarters in Eden. What do you mean by that? God planted a garden. Now, if God planted a garden, what kind of garden is it? Perfect. It had everything, right? It had the fruit in it. It had whatever Adam needed in it. And it was also beautiful, right? God didn't plant a weed garden. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful place. And man was put in that garden to do what? Tend it. Now, how, what do you mean by tend it? I mean, if the, if, the, if the world is perfect, right, and there's no weeds to pull, what did, what did Adam do? He had to care for it. You know, he had to... Maintain it. We don't, we're not told specifically what it is. There was no weeds yet. But, you know, he, he said to work it and keep it. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So, you know, part of it was cultivating the fruit maybe, um, picking the fruit, making sure that the plants were taken care of. God did not create man to be a vagrant. God created man to do work. Um, to, now, the work in that day that man did was not the burdensome work that we have today. But it was work nevertheless. It was something to do. All right? And for everybody who enjoys doing gardening, you're doing what God created Adam to do at the beginning, which is the garden. I hate gardening, but that's what Adam did. And man was to provide names for all the creatures. Now, why, why is that? There's two reasons that God had him do that, remember? Yeah. To name them. Show dominion over them. And also to make them 
Right. By naming, and this is something very common in the scriptures, when you name something or when you are in the process of naming something, that shows that you have some kind of superiority over that thing, some dominion over that. Alright? So the fact that Adam was to name the animals indicates that he was the one who had dominion over the animals. He named them. Alright? So there is a, there is a, a, a hierarchy there, alright, in man's response, or man's relationship to nature as a whole. And that's why, for example, when you look at, um, the whole concept of evolution, you know, evolution just makes us a glorified monkey. That's all it is. What right do we have to name things other than the fact that we can talk and we can kill them if, with guns and things like that? No, that, that's, a, that's a totally humanistic view of things. God created man as the pinnacle of his creation, gave him dominion, man was to name the animals. Um, man was to love and protect his wife, Genesis 2.24. Why did God create Eve? Well, as a helpmeet, all right, as a partner in subduing creation, all right, and, and, as, and to help him fulfill the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Um, she was a helpmeet, and his job, and this is the thing to understand when you look at the first family, Adam's job was to care and love and protect his wife. Now, how do you know that? How do you know Adam had headship? Now, we, when we throw that word out, a lot of women today just get all riled up, right? I mean, you just say that on TV, they're, all, they're ready to run you out of town and burn you. He named her. He named her. All right. Adam named her. What else? How else? Born from his rib. She was born from his rib, his side. Well, how else? She was being his companion. Right. She was created for man. man, not man for the woman. And before the fall, there was a perfect compatibility between them. It wasn't, you know, they, they, they didn't have family squabbles before the fall. All right. They had a role there. And understand that we see this throughout Scripture, right? Even in the Trinity, there are roles, aren't there? Jesus Christ, is He equal with God the Father in all respects? Absolutely. But in the drama of redemption, what did Christ do voluntarily? Submitted Himself to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit, is He God? Absolutely. Full deity, no difference. But in the drama of redemption, what did the Holy Spirit do? Submitted Himself to the Son and the Father. All right? There's no inequality in view here. Rather, there's a difference of role. And in the first family, God created man to have headship. And we're going to see how that plays out here. He created the man to have the headship. He's created man to protect and care for his wife. And he created the woman to be loved and protected by her husband, by her mate. That's the normal way of things, folks. And and if you think about it, and if you, if you go home at night and think strong, clear, whatever gender you are, you realize that you're wired to do that, right? Mm-hmm. A woman is not wired to, to be the head of the family. She's not wired for that. Sometimes she has to do that because of economic exigencies, or maybe she, her husband is, is dead. She's a widow, or, or you know she's not married. That's that's different. But in the home, a woman is not designed to run the family. She just doesn't feel right doing that. In spite of all the feminization out there, most women, normal women, just don't want that. They don't want to go out there and slog it out in the workplace. What do women want to do? They want to keep a home, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You don't want to do that. And, and it's easy to see that when you get a bunch of women together, what do they talk about? No. They're kids. They're family, right? How many kids do you have? What are they doing? What's your family? You know what? How's your grand? Oh, look at those number she grandkids. You know, that's what women do. They sit around. They talk about kids. Now, when you get men and get a whole bunch of men together, what do they talk about? Which is? What do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? That's what men talk about. All right. God's wired us certain ways. All right. That's normal. And you know, there's a great. I know there's a great push in today's society to bust the norms. You know, and make. Make it out to be just one androgynous whole, you know, where a woman can do everything a man can do, and a man can do everything a woman can do. I'll tell you what, men cannot do everything women do. And women cannot do everything men do. God created us different. Well, I don't like being sick of Yeah. Doesn't that bother you, Mike? You have to do everything you've got to support, you've got to support a family the rest of your life. Doesn't it bother you, guys? No. It's natural. It's natural. It doesn't. Yeah. Well, see, but see, you're not wired to do that. See, you're not wired to do that. You know, um, a man finds fulfillment in taking care of his family and providing for his family. That's, I'm sorry, that's just the way we're wired to do that. And um, when we can't do that, that's hard on us. All right. Most normal men, it's hard on them. You know, that's why it's such a devastating thing for a man to get laid off because. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to care for my family. I'm supposed to take care of my family. I'm not. It's a devastating thing. It's hard. It's a tough thing to work through because that's how God's wired us internally. And women are wired to take care of the home, you know, to have a place and to decorate it, you know. If, you know, if you'd have come in my home and Donna wasn't around, I wouldn't have anything hanging on the walls, you know. I wouldn't be color coordinated, you know. The TV work? Yeah. Can I make supper? Yeah. You know, can I take shower? Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's the necessities of life. Right there, you know. I mean, I, I love that. What's that one beer commercial where they're showing off their new house, right? And the woman shows them her big, her big closet and the ladies just yelling out clothes and all the clothes there. And then they hear the men yelling, what do they got? They got a big beer cooler or something like that, you know. It's just different. Men are... Men and women are different. And God created man to care for his family. That's how he wired us. And God created woman to be the helpmeet for the man, to care for the home, to, to care for her children. That's the normal thing for her to do. All right? And when you fulfill those roles, you are most um, fulfilled in your life. That's just the way it is. And even the most rank liberal feminazis would admit deep down in their heart they want to care for their kids. Alright? That's how God's created... And that's normal. Okay? And that's what God created man to do, to care for his family. Now, what happened in the fall? Well, confusion entered, right? Confusion. That's where the scraps and the fights in the family come from. And our problem is we live in a society today where the role reversals are full force, right? Women are out working and dropping the kids off at daycare and then they wonder why the kids turn out bad. Well, yeah, mom's not home. Mom's not home. I remember talking to a buddy of mine at at work and, you know, he he worked his entire life, cared for his family. His wife was at home with the kids. He was sort of an oddball. His family was. But you know what? All of his kids turned out to be non-drug addicts. 
and they all turned out well. That doesn't mean your kids will turn out well. If, you know, there's always going to be one that's going to turn left when everybody else is going right. But, but the point is, generally, when you look at society, a lot of our problems are because our families are just breaking the mold that God has created them to be. Mom's out working, dad's out working, nobody's watching the kids. They're running amok, so what do you expect? Um, God's created us that way. And, and a woman finds her fulfillment in her family, in her children, in her, in her home. A man finds his fulfillment at the job and caring for his family, at work and being able to provide for his family. That's normal. And when anybody tells you that's abnormal, they're wrong. That's the normal way um, that God created man to be. Man was to reproduce himself and populate the earth with his kind. What did God tell Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's part of the creation mandate. To have children. It's, it's normal to have children. Now, some people, God's not given them children, right? But normally, it's normal to have children. It's, it's, that's the normal way that God's created things. And that's why God created marriage. Now, again, there's a push today to punt marriage, right? Sleep with whoever you want. You're free. No, that's not the way God created us. God created the original design, one man, one woman, for life. Well, then why did God take a woman out and expect the payback afterwards? What's that? Part of the fall. I mean, the fall messed everything up. The yeah, fall... Now, this is the this is you know this, the problem is sin has totally messed that up. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of the fall. I mean, what we are what we're seeing in the breakdown of the family society's part is a curse. It's the curse of the fall. Um, we're talking about God's ideal here, right? We live in a fallen world, but God's ideal is one man, one woman for life. He is to care for his wife. That's, that was, and Jesus reiterated that in Matthew. He said, in the beginning, it was not so. God created one man and one woman. Now, we see throughout history how man has followed that up, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have multiple wives, you have serial adultery, which means you marry one, divorce her, marry another one, divorce her, marry another one, divorce her. That's the Hollywood mentality, right? You go through them one at a time until you get tired of them, get somebody else. Or you just sleep around, doesn't matter. Well, that's not the way God created us. God created us to be fulfilled in a family unit. And that's one man, one woman for life. Man was to enjoy his relationship with God. In what way? Well, in the cool of the day, what happened? God walked in the garden. Now, as you, as you read Genesis, you get the hint that this was a normal, ongoing thing. It wasn't, that's the first time God showed up. But they, they're used to, in the cool of the day, in the evening, God shows up and... Adam talks to God. That's a pretty wild thing to do, right? To think you're walking with God and talking with God and sharing the events of the day and, and just communion and fellowship. What are you going to be doing in heaven for all of eternity? Fellowship with, with each other and with God. It's going to be a wonderful thing. Um, man was to enjoy that. God created... This is the thing. God created us. Remember we talked about the Imago Dei, the image of God. God created us to have a relationship with Him. God created us with the need for relationships. And that is why when you see Castaway, you've got Wilson. Why did Tom Hanks make Wilson? Because he was going to go bananas with nobody there. So he paints a face on a soccer ball and that's Wilson. 
you know, remember this part in where Wilson gets washed overseas and Tom Hanks about has a conniption because, yeah, it, God created us for that. God did not create us to go off on, a, on an island and live alone. God created us for a relationship. And God created us spiritually to have a relationship with Him. All right? Man was to enjoy the fruits of the garden except one. God said you can do anything you want except one thing. Just one thing, that's all. Just don't eat of that tree, whatever it is. We don't know what the fruit is. We don't know. I think it's a plum because I hate plums, but you never know what it is. Um, it was a tree. It was, and he knew which one it was, right? There was no ambiguity. It was not that he was going to accidentally eat of it. He knew what it was. He could identify it. And God said, you can have everything in the garden except that one thing. And Adam knew what that was. And what did Adam tell Eve? He told her what it was too, right? Now, who did God tell not to eat of the tree? Adam, man. Alright? That's another hint at the headship concept. Man was held responsible for the first family. He was spiritually responsible for that. He, and he could, do, he could eat anything except that one thing. And then man was forbidden to take of that one tree, right? Don't eat that. When the day you eat it, you will die. Now, how did Adam compute death? He didn't know what it was, right? What do you mean die? What is that? What's die? Right? Because he'd never seen death. And by the way, did the animals kill each other at this time? No. So that sort of blows evolution, right? You don't have animals killing each other? Because what did God create all the plants for? Food for the animals. Yeah, wait a minute. Lions eat grass? Yeah. What's going to happen in the millennium? They're going to eat grass. Okay. See, I didn't know, I didn't know cats could do that. I thought they were carnivores, right? Teeth, claws, and all that stuff. That's the evolutionary nonsense. No, God originally created all the animals to eat plants. And by the way, and I know Barry's going to love this, God created us to eat plants. I don't know. I want a steak in the... Well, I'm not going to have to worry about having a steak in the morning because I'll be in glorified body, but... Yeah. We are talking about this over a burger. <laughs> he had the tofu. I had the Angus beef burger. You know, whatever. But, uh, no, God created... God originally created animals to eat the plants, right? Now, after the flood, what did God allow man to do? Or what did God tell man to do now? You can eat meat. Alright, so, so meat is not off the diet, folks. Off, you know, don't, don't worry about having a burger. You know, now, if you have one every day, you need to worry. But Yeah, only 1.5 equivalent quarter pounders per week is all you can have of red meat, according to the, um, the propaganda paper that... that very good. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was man's response. So God created man to do some things, right? God did not create man to loaf. And when we get to heaven, you think, well, heaven's going to be a place where, you know, we sit around and we loaf all day long. No, we're not going to be loafing. I don't know what we're going to be doing, but we're not going to be sitting around loafing. All right? It'll be a wonderful place. Now, what happened to all of this perfection that God created? Well, it all came crashing down in Genesis 3, didn't it? With the fall. With the fall. 
And we're going to look at this in more detail. We're just going to get a high-level view now at it. And we're going to be coming back and visiting this a couple of more times as we work our way through the rest of the doctrinal series in the next year or so. But, but when you look at the fall, there's basically several theories of the fall that come out when you look at Genesis 3. Um, the liberal position. What's the liberal position? Well, there was no fall. I mean, we're a product of evolution. So all the fall is, is just kind of some legend or story to teach a moral truth, but it's really not an actual event. There was never a real Adam. There was never a real Eve. It was all made up. All right? It's a, it's a story. It's a legend. It's nothing more than what you would see in the Greek mythologies or Pandora's box or anything like that. It's just a mythological story. The problem with that is how did Christ treat Adam and Eve? Treat Adam and Eve. As a historical people, right? I mean, Christ treated Adam and Eve as historical personages, not as some moral story to teach something. How did Paul treat Adam and Eve? Real people. The point is, there's no biblical evidence that this is anything but a real story. It's not a legend. It's not, it's not some made-up story to teach some moral truth. These are real people. Even as Paul said, as, as, as the serpent beguiled Eve. Well, how did Paul think of Eve at that point? Well, he was just catering to you know the, the legendary mindset of his day. No, he wasn't. The Holy Spirit's not going to lie to you, right? There's nothing in, the, in Genesis 1. There, there, there's a movement in, in Christianity today to want to make Genesis 1 through 11 some kind of allegory allegorical stories. You know, they're they're allegories. They're they're there to teach some moral truth in a story form, but there's really no historical personages behind it. That's baloney. The New Testament treats these as historical personages. Christ treats them as historical personages. Christ says, as in the days of Noah. So he certainly thought of Noah as a real person. There's no evidence at all. That, That is just somebody trying to discount the first few chapters of the Bible because they don't like what it says. But there's no evidence scripturally or biblically that this is anything but a real story with real people. But the liberal position says, nah, it's just some allegorical story. It's just some kind of thing like, you know, the Pandora's box of Greek mythology or, or anything like that. No, they, they, teach it's, they say it's just a, a legend. Pelagian, we're going to come back and visit this guy. It's called Pelagius is his name. And uh, he and uh, Augustine had some, of St. Augustine, had uh, some uh, debates back in the 3rd century, 4th century actually it was. And um, basically what Pelagius said is that, look, Adam's sin was a real sin. He, he believed in a real Adam, by the way. But he said, it was just a bad example. It really doesn't affect me today. You know, the fact that Adam's sin has no effect on my life today or on me. Follow what he's saying? Adam sinned, yes. Adam fell, yes. But that doesn't affect me personally. All right. Well, this is what Pelagius taught, and we're going to talk. We're going to we're going to talk about this in more detail. I'm just hitting it, at, you know, giving you a little taste of what's coming. But Pelagius basically said, "Look, Adam's sin was a bad example, but a person, any person who's born today, is born in a state of innocence. They are not born. He denied original sin. Okay." He basically said, you're not born with original sin. You're born innocent. And until you choose to sin as a baby, you are innocent. Now, what's the problem with that kind of 
logic. Other than it's anti-biblical, but logically. How many people have lived since, create, since Adam? Pick a number. Some estimates have been 40 billion. All right, we've got about, what, about 8 billion people in the world today, you know. Some said, ah, about 40 billion, give or take. What did all 40 billion people do? All right, so statistically, this makes no sense, right? Because if you were born innocent, statistically, someone out of 40 billion should have chosen not to sin. But that's never been the case, right? We've all fallen, all right? But Pelagius taught, he, he basically said, no, we're born without sin, and we only become a sinner when we, as babies, as children, make a decision to sin. Alright, so in that way, Adam's sin did not affect me at all. It, it, it was just a bad thing. It, it affected Adam, right? It, it, it made him fall. It brought him under the curse, but it really doesn't affect me at all. Alright, this is really an anti-biblical position. It's really, it, it's heretical, basically. Alright, you, you buy into Pelagianism, you, you're buying into some serious heresy. Alright, because it denies original sin. Um, and then there's a view here that's, that's sort of, we call it semi-Pelagian. All right, and maybe if you heard this this word before, Arminian, Arminian versus Calvinism, we'll talk about all of this good stuff later. Um, but basically, the Arminian or semi-Pelagian view doesn't go so far as to say we have no original sin. Rather, it said Adam's sins weakened the human race. So what they would say is this: they would say Adam's sin weakened us. We are we do have this thing called original sin, but it is not so bad as to totally make us unable to choose right. Follow what I'm saying there? Semi-Pelagian says you're born with the ability to freely choose right and wrong. Just so happened that all 40 billion of us chose wrong. All right? Semi-Pelagian says, no, you're born with a weakness. You're born with a propensity. Adam's sin affected us in that it weakened us but it did not remove our ability to, in and of ourselves, apart from God's help, apart from the assistance of the Holy Spirit, we can choose right. The average pagan on the street can choose to do the right thing. He doesn't need God's help to do it. You follow what's being said there? All right. You don't have to be taught what is right. You may need to be taught what is right, but you have the ability, every human being has the ability to, in and of themselves, Apart from God, choose right. Do you follow what's going on there? Now we're going to, we're going to work this through in, in more detail in the doctrine of salvation. But what this view says of the fall, Adam's sin did affect the human race, but it did not destroy our moral consciousness. Following that? It didn't destroy it, it weakened it. We're weak. We, we, we have a propensity to sin. We, we naturally want, have an inclination towards that, but... It, we, are, we have not been so radically affected as to be unable to make the right decision. You follow what's... Yeah. And which one? Bottom one? Um, some who... This is a, a spectrum. Okay? It, it, it's a spectrum. All right? But there are some in this... Um, I'll tell you what churches are in this. Um, Wesleyan churches buy into this a little bit. Um, in sinless perfection. They say you can reach a point 
It, no, it's not them. It's it's the it's Nazarene. Okay. That's right. But there's, and what I'm saying on this one, there is a spectrum. Okay. There's a spectrum on this. It's not one singular monolithic position. Some of them do not. Yeah. Some of them do not. But there are some, and I, I ran into a couple, that basically you can reach a point where you don't sin as a human being, where you, you just don't sin. Now, again, yeah, you got God helping you, of course. You know, you got that. But you can reach that point where you make no, you do not sin for a long period of time. I need to qualify, too. I don't know if you're answering this question. Yeah. Yeah. And again, understand when we talk about this, and this is a good point to make out, there is a spectrum. There's a wide spectrum of things. There are some that are over on this side and some over on this side. But, but, but one of the general things in here is that there, it, it really emphasizes the human will aspect, this, this part. It emphasizes... Mm-hmm. Based on the fact that we choose whether we are going to obey. Right. Or not. Right. And so. But, but our ability to make that choice is very much governed by divine activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Some that's one end of the spectrum. There's another end of the spectrum that says no, you can do it on your own. It's a spectrum. That's not the spectrum you're. That's not the end that you're used to. But, but, but the semi Pelagian says you can perfectly choose in and of yourself. You have a completely free inclination to choose good or evil. All right. You do not need the power of God to help you make any decision here. Here you start getting into the perspective where, yeah, you need maybe a little bit of help from God, but you have a large responsibility to in and of yourself decide. Yes, I'm going to do it, or no, I'm not. Some that fall into this believe you can lose your salvation. Again, it's a spectrum. There's a, there's a wide spectrum. Some say, no, you can't. Others say, yeah, you can. All right. Some of the, like the Wesleyan, some Nazarene um, faith say, yeah, you can lose your salvation because you can choose not to obey. You can fall into sin. And if you do, you've lost it. All right. We'll sort that out. going to hit some where this really works its way out is in the whole doctrine of salvation do you choose God or does he choose you and we're going to get that in soteriology the whole predestination election business I but when know, it, I, I lack a lot of understanding yeah. of what the traditional right. you can actually go out you can actually go out to the internet 
and look up Jacob Arminius, and it will actually list those. All right. And again, we're going to sort this out in great detail theologically what they, what they mean. We're looking at it from a 20,000 foot level right now. We're not getting down into the weeds. And, and basically you have these, these three, three major clumps of views here. You have one view called the Pelagian which says Adam's sin did not affect us at all. We still choose in and of ourselves. You've got the semi-Pelagian or partly Pelagian view that says no, it weakened us but it did not destroy our moral responsibility to make right choices, all right, which sounds a little bit better, okay. And by the way, someone who believes this, they're not heretics, understand that, all right. We're, we're not talking about heresy here. Pelagian, you're a heretic. Semi-Pelagian, no, you're not, all right, because we're still struggling through, even theologically, how to understand all of this. And then the final position here is the Augustinian position. And the Augustinian position basically says, no, Adam is our federal head. When he sinned, we all sin with him. So, we have original sin. We are stamped with original sin. And that's the best understanding of Romans 5, when it talks about Adam, in Adam all died, in Christ all are made alive. For as one man, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, biblically, Romans 5 seems to indicate the Augustinian position, substantiate the Augustinian position that says, no, Adam's sin directly affected me. How did Adam's sin directly affect me? When Adam sinned, I did it with him. And you say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Adam lived, what, 6,000 years ago? How do, wh- wh- wait a minute, that's, that's not fair. How did Adam's sin affect me? Well, where were you when Adam sinned? Symbolically, you were with Adam, right? This is an interesting concept in the Bible. Um, if you go to Hebrews, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, who paid tithes with him? Levi. Levi wasn't born yet. That's right. But Levi was in the loins of Adam, yet unborn, it says. So when Adam paid tithes, Levi paid tithes with him. When Adam sinned, we sinned with him. And had all of us been in the garden, we would have all done what? We would have all done that. Adam is our federal head. Now, some say again, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that Adam's sin messed me up. Well, then, why is it fair that Christ's righteousness can be imputed to me, right? That's the argument being made in Romans 5. If in Adam all sin and Christ are all are made alive, okay, I died in Adam, but by placing my faith in Christ, what can happen? It can be reversed, right? So not only is Adam my federal head, but Christ can be my federal head through salvation. And that's really the theme of Romans 5. You're identified with one of two people. Adam and death, Christ and life. Every human being that's ever lived is going to be identified with one of those two. You are identified with Adam by virtue of your existence, by being born. You're identified with Christ through the new birth, the second birth, regeneration. But everybody is going to be identified in the end with one of those two men. Adam and death, Christ and life. One of those two. Yeah. I'm using my great artistic abilities here to draw a man. Alright? This is Adam here. Okay? And what the federal headship view says, alright? It's here's here's uh, all the beings that ever lived, and down here somewhere is you, 
All right? It says when Adam sinned, there is immediate imputation. What does that mean? What does imputation mean? To credit to an account. All right? So Adam's sin is directly credited to everybody that's ever been born. So when you're born by virtue of you being a human being, you are deemed guilty. You are guilty. You are guilty of Adam's sin. So whether you ever commit an individual sin in your life or not is irrelevant. You're still a sinner. Whether you even do anything wrong. So the fact that, you know, the, the Pelagian position where it basically says you have to, you're not a sinner until you choose. No. Romans 5 says you're a sinner by virtue of your existence. By being born, you're a sinner. You're born into the fallen line of Adam. But there is a second component of the fallenness here. All right? Because not only did, is Adam's sin directly imputed to me, all right? But what else am I born with? What's the second line there? Federal head. He's federal head, but what's the second one there? A propensity. All right? So not only did Adam's sin directly imputed to me, but Adam passed down through the centuries this propensity to sin, didn't he? This weakness. You have to teach babies to sin. Now they do pretty good on their own, right? They don't need any lessons in rebellion. They work out very well on their own. So what Augustine says is that Adam's sin, the fall, affected all of us. Every human being in two ways. Number one, it affected us because, it infected, affected us because Adam was our federal head. So when you are born by virtue of your existence as a human being, you are automatically identified with Adam. You are guilty as Adam is. You have the imputed guilt of Adam directly given to you at the moment of your birth. You are sinful. And then, not only are you sinful because you have the imputed guilt of Adam as though you ate that fruit yourself, but you also inherit from him a proclivity, an inclination to sin. It's called the flesh. Right? And that's the thing that we struggle with all the time, our flesh. Our flesh causes us to sin. Alright? And what God has done through redemption is what has he done with this imputed guilt of Adam? Right. So, what God does is he takes the imputed guilt of Adam and credits that to Christ and he takes Christ's righteousness and credits it to us. That's Romans 5. You just got, that's the, that's the 20,000 foot view of Romans 5. God, we are born with the imputed guilt of Adam. We're born in death. But through Christ, through his righteousness, through his sacrifice, we can have the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to us instead of Adam's death. And because of that, as far as God's concerned, he sees us as righteous as Christ is. That's the imputed righteousness of Christ. And what does God do with this fallen flesh, ultimately? Through salvation of Christ. Well, salvation, do you still lug it around? No. Someday it's gone, right? Someday you have a new body, a new... You're going to be glorified. You're not going to have a flesh. In heaven, you're not going to have flesh to lug around. The proclivity to sin. Isn't that cool? In heaven, you're not going to be able to mess it up. Because you're not going to have the flesh that you lug around. This is the struggle of Romans 6 and 7. Where Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't, want to, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And 
who's going to deliver me from the body of this death, the, the flesh, the, the fallenness, the proclivity to sin? Where did I get that? I got it from my parents. Where did they get it? They got it from their parents. And if you work way back, where did they get it? They got it from Adam and Eve. We were born in sin. We're a sinner not only because we have the imputed guilt of Adam, we're also a sinner because we have a natural inclination for evil and we act upon that from the earliest ages and choose evil. So the concept that you're born as a blank slate and that you choose is not really biblical. That's what self. We don't think about what people sacrifice mm-hmm. when they sin. There's a huge cost. Yeah. A huge loss. And it, 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 it's right down to the, the very depth of existence. Right. And one of the things we're going to talk about when we get in the whole Calvinism Arminianism debate. It's the whole concept of what is total depravity. You probably heard that word tossed around. I like radical corruption. And the idea of radical corruption is that sin has affected every part of us. There's not a single component of our existence that's not been affected and stained by sin. Are all of us as bad as we could be? No. But all of us are radically corrupt in that is it affected it's affected our thinking, it's affected our decision making, it's affected our ability to make decisions, it's affected our moral view of things. Sin has just so affected us in so many ways that we you know, as we grow in the Lord, as we grow in our Christian faith, we start to realize just how bad we are. Sin becomes a tradition. You know, and in fact the closer here's a here's an interesting understanding the closer you get to God, the more you understand His Word, the more you understand who God is, the worse you see yourself. Alright? Because you understand that. And what, what Ruth Ann has basically said is true. What we lost in Adam, we gain back in Christ. We don't get it all right now. We get, we get a good chunk of it now. We don't get it all. But in heaven, we'll have it all. We'll have a restored relationship. 
But Adam's sin, this is the point, the, the whole point of these couple of slides here, Adam's sin has radically affected every human being in the world today. Adam's sin explains the problem of evil, the problem of corruption. It all stems from Adam's one act of rebellion. And see, our problem is we think of that and we say, well, you know, that wasn't such a big... I mean, good night. All he did was eat of the wrong tree. What's so tough? Well, we ought to understand that in God's sight, there is no sort of levels of sin. Sin is sin. Rebellion is rebellion. Right. To not trust God. And that's what it was. So, yeah. so let's look at this fall of man a little bit here and see how far we get. When you look at the original thing, the, the garden was perfect, right? The environment was perfect. So when the, the psychologists come along today and said, well, you know, man's problem is he lives in a bad environment, blah, 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 blah. You know, man had a perfect environment. No mosquitoes, no bugs, no, you know, no... no no pain, no nothing. All right, he lived in a perfect environment. He it, it was it was a place of perfection because God had created it that way. And it was only one command. He didn't have ten of them. He had one of them. Don't eat that tree. That's it. That was just one. There wasn't even a lot of restrictions, right? It wasn't hard for man to do the right thing. He could have just not eaten that one tree. There's thousands of other trees to eat from, but just don't eat that one. And man was in a state of innocence. Now, this is important to understand. Adam was not in a state of righteousness. He was in a state of innocence. What is the difference? He didn't do anything meritorious to be righteous, but he didn't do anything sinful to be sinful. He was innocent. Do you understand the difference there? So, so salvation does not make us innocent. What does salvation actually do? makes us righteous. Okay? Salvation goes beyond. Salvation restores and goes beyond what Adam lost. But Adam was innocent, which means, and this is an important thing to understand, we'll sort this out in a later class, he did not have any inclination to do evil, but he did not have any... He had an equal inclination to do evil and good. He could have chosen. In fact, if you want to think about it, Adam was the only human being, Adam and Eve, were the only two human beings that had a perfectly free will. If you mean by that, they had the ability to equally choose good and evil. Right? There was no sin nature they had to contend with. There was no corruption they had to contend with. They were equally able to choose good or evil. We aren't, by the way. We're not. Because what do we have? We have the curse of the flesh. So we're, we have a series of bad choices to make. But we're not having equal inclination to choose good and to choose evil. Adam and Eve did. They were innocent. So they were in a perfect environment. And what do you see in the participants? Well, what do you have Adam? Adam is created as the head of the family, which means what? He's responsible, right? He's the responsible party. Adam was the one that God told him, don't eat of the tree, right? So Adam was the responsible party. Eve was created as Adam's helpmeet, as, her, as his partner. And notice what I say there, partner. Eve was not created to be a slave. Eve was created as a partner, as a companion, a complement to Adam. And you have the serpent. The serpent was evidently a beautiful creature, not the ugly snakes that you see today. 
And he just became the mouthpiece of Satan is all. He became that which Satan spoke through, the serpent. And throughout Scripture, what is Satan seen as? The great serpent, the deceiver. So what happened? Well, this is, this is interesting. What was the first step in man's fall? What was the first step? Question God's what? Yeah. Did God really tell you to don't eat of that tree? Did He really tell you that? And what did Satan begin to plant in Eve's mind? Doubt. Alright? Here's the thing. Most acts of sin are done by believing God does not have our best interests at heart. But we don't think He does, right? God says, thou shalt not steal, but we have a better idea on that, don't we? God says we're not to lie, but we have a better idea. A lot of times when we sin, we think that God is trying to hold back on us. He's trying to keep us from enjoying ourselves. That's one of the things where, you know, immorality, they, well, you know, God created sex, have at it, go for it. Why did He create you that way if you're not supposed to do it? Well, we think God does not, we think the idea of one man, one one woman for life is too restrictive. You know, it destroys our freedom. We need to be free to be able to make our own choices and do our own thing. And isn't that behind the world's thinking today? People have a right to do anything they want. And, and, and the biggest, the religious, you know, whack jobs are the ones that want to say that you're not allowed to do that. Look at the whole uh, mess of the, you know, Miss California and the whole anti-gay thing she said. You know, I got everybody up in arms. Why? You have a right to do that. How dare you question someone's ability or, or right to, to do what they want to do? And see, what is it? We think that God has, has something. He's trying to keep us from enjoying ourselves. And if God sees anybody down there enjoying themselves, He's got a bat ready to knock them upside the head and make them miserable. And what else do we do? Well, we, we exalt our thinking over God's. Well, God said this, but you know what? I, I have a better way of doing that. I really don't think that's, that's the right thing. I think this is better. And what do we do? We exalt our reasoning over God's. I know God said that, but I have a better idea. I, I think there's a better way to do that. Or I don't like what God said. I'm going to do this other thing instead because I think it's just as equally valid. Yeah. 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 And, and this is the thing here. You know, God. Here's, here's the thing to understand. God created us a certain way. Okay. He's created men and women to have a normal relationship in a marriage. That's how God created. That's where you find the greatest fulfillment in life. But what does the world say? Restrictive. Slavery for women. Don't do that. You know, that's the feminist viewpoint. Abuse. Go do your own thing. You know, have a career. You know, you, and you have a better idea. And that's why our world's in such a mess. Because we decide that we have a better idea about this than God does. We know better. We become the authority, not God. What did, when, ultimately, when it's all said and done, when, when Eve took that fruit and ate, what was she really saying? 
I don't trust God. God's holding out on me. God has some ulterior motive. God, God somehow is trying to keep me from doing what I should have the right to do. And notice how all these things now are rights. It's a right to sin. It's a right to be a homosexual. It's a right to be an adulterer. It's a right to do this. It's no longer seen as something evil. that You have a right to live any way you want. And then what does Satan do? Satan planted the doubt and then he said, Oh, God really didn't mean that. God is what? Lying to you. God doesn't mean what God says he says. And really, that's, that's the basic thing when it comes to sin. Sin is saying, I don't believe what God says is true. Now, here's the problem with that. Has God ever lied? Has Satan ever told the truth? So why do you believe Satan? Right? Why do we believe him? And what does Satan do? Satan challenges God's motives. In the, in the temptation with Christ, what does Satan do? If you're hungry, make these stones into bread, right? In other words, God, your father's abandoned you. You're hungry. You have the power, make them into bread. You could do that. In fact, you can jump off the temple. That'd be a good inauguration for your ministry. You know, to fly through the air with the greatest of ease and land on your feet. And boy, everybody would be following you then. Sin is basically saying, I have a better view. I have a better way of doing things. I have a better understanding of things than God does. God is wrong. God is not right. God is holding back on me. He doesn't have my best interest at heart. He wants to be restrictive. He wants to be a prude. He doesn't want me to have fun. He doesn't want me to enjoy myself. That's what sin is. We exalt ourselves. He challenges God's motives, God's goodness, God's character. God doesn't want you to be like Him. God doesn't want you to know good and evil. God's holding out on you. He's jealous. He's got some ulterior motive for keeping you from eating that. He doesn't want you to be like Him. He doesn't want to have any rivals. And you know what we've done, what man, sinful man has basically done? They said, we're equal with God. We have a right to choose as much as God does. We can do what we want. We can live any way we want. Because we have a better idea of this than God does. And what does Eve do? She believed the lie and ate. Now, did sin enter the world at that point? No, when did sin enter the world? When Adam ate. Why? He was the federal head. Notice what it said. Eve ate the fruit, and then she gave it to Adam, and he ate, and when he ate, what happened? The eyes of both of them were then opened. Alright, so it wasn't Eve's eating of the fruit that, and sin entered the world. It was when Adam ate the fruit, and it was confirmed. Because Adam was the federal head. Adam was the one responsible spiritually for the family. Now, what would have happened had Adam not eaten? Don't know. <laughs> That's a hypothetical. All right. Yeah, we don't know. But we do know this. When Adam ate, the act was confirmed. He, and here's the thing to understand. Eve was deceived. Adam did it with full knowledge. The New Testament says Eve was deceived. She was deceived. It wasn't that Eve um, consciously knew and, and, and disregarded it. She was deceived into thinking she was doing the right thing. And folks, listen, that is the insidious nature of sin. We're going to talk about this. 
The insidious nature of sin is that you think you're doing the right thing when all along you're doing the wrong thing. And a great movie illustration is Star Wars 3 Return of the Sith or, or whatever, the Rise of the Sith or whatever it is. The third one where Anakin turns to the dark side. What's he think he's doing if you watch the movie? He's doing good. He's doing, good. He's doing the right thing. He's doing the best thing. And all along, what is he on the path to? Evil and destruction. That's how Satan operates. He thinks he makes you think you're doing the right thing. You're doing it. You're being right, and all along you're headed right towards the cliff and destruction. And that's what happened to Eve. Eve thought she was doing the right thing, and guess what? It was the wrong thing. She was deceived. How many more do we have? We have one more slide. What are some of the results of the fall? Quickly here, and we'll talk about these a little more. Well, shame. How do you know it was shame? They covered themselves, right? They had a self-consciousness now. They, had, they were all of a sudden they were ashamed of what they did. They wanted to hide. And we've been hiding ever since. Their shame. Fear. They hid from God. And, you know, God said, where are you now? Did God know what happened? Of course He did. He's trying to engage the conversation with man. You have discord, uh, God basically says now there's going to be discord between you and the woman. We don't have time to go into that. But the construct of the Hebrew text there says your, your desire will be for man, yet he will rule over you. And, and you see the beginning of the battle of the sexes. Yeah. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, so he couldn't blame anyone. Um, discord. You got, you got discord. You got death, right? Now, what kind of death entered? Spiritual death immediately. Now, 900 and some odd years later, you have physical death, but spiritual death entered the world. Separation from God. You have suffering. You're going to be able. You're going to have to till the ground by the sweat of your brow. Weariness of labor. And the woman, how is she going to be affected? She's going to bear children in agony and pain. And not only do I think that refers to the physical agony, but it refers to the emotional agony because what is she going to see in her children? The stain of sin, right? What happened to Eve? Eve and Adam got to see Cain kill his brother. They got to see the results of that in their own family. You have separation from God. Now this is interesting. What happens in Christ? Every one of those is reversed, right? In heaven we will be perfect. There will be nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to hide. We will have no fear. We'll be able to walk with God and see God face to face. We won't be hiding behind some pillar in heaven. Discord will be gone. We'll be in perfect harmony with one another. Death will be removed. There's no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain of any kind. No more weariness of labor. No more separation from God. In Christ, everything that we lost in the fall is gained and then some in Christ. It's the relationship that we get restored. All right. Yes. Well, the, the real truth of that is that Adam ate us out of house and home. It was Adam's, 
Adam was the bad guy. He was the one that did it. Um, he was the one that confirmed the sin. So, All right, well, let's close in prayer and we'll pick up next week. Father, thanks for this day you've granted to us and pray that you help us to ponder these truths. Thank you for teaching us now in this time together. In Christ's name, amen.